We didn't really introduce ourselves, should we? Y'all could. They know who I am. They know me. Welcome to the Hashing It Out podcast, where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. Your hosts are Dr. Corey Petty, currently doing research at Status and waiting for other people to keep up. They're definitely the cat sound, like that standard, like, Jesse Santiago, a former electrical engineer now working on decentralized storage at Status. Uh, okay. I caught, I caught a little bit of it. And with the deep voice and the deep questions, Dee Ferguson. I got a question, and that's how I always like to start my questions, by the way. And I'm the Hashing It Out showrunner, Christian Noguera. Whoa, okay, sorry, Corey, continue, continue. That's shameful. This is part two of our episode on the network layer with guests Julia Fanti and Hanno Cornelius. It became clear from both of their conversations that there's quite a bit going on before you get to the part about blockchains that most people think about, which is like consensus and everything after that. So we're like this, this, this whole series is about everything before that, basically, or this, this part of the series is, is the part of the uh, technology that is required to build these networks that happens before most of the stuff everyone thinks about. And there's quite a bit of implications on how you do that like security how much how much resources your node takes all kinds of things and i thought that was it's interesting to hear it from most people that it became quite clear like oh yeah there's quite a bit going on that like you have to take into consideration when you're trying to build these networks that happens really really early in, in this like technology stack if you will um i mean my takeaway from Julie, the interview with Julia was, uh, and it was, it's just so surprisingly little that is thought goes in, like you kind of open your statement with Corey, like surprisingly little thought is, is in the layers that we're kind of like trying to discover more about the hardware layer and the network layer. And I don't think that most people even developing on this tech are thinking that low on the stack they're just like oh the internet's working then i guess my thing's gonna work right they don't i don't think anybody's thinking on that that layer when they're developing these these technologies so it's crazy to me that we're trying to develop open systems on closed systems i don't know that seems like backwards does that make any sense? Does any of this make any sense? There saying? are there are plenty of people that do think about this and care about it. It's just not very hyped up. Like there's no value aggregation in the peer-to-peer network layer, right? And so like no one's talking about that, but it has so many drastic implications on where the value actually is, where people are building applications and all this other stuff that like change the way they build things or what they can do with the things that they build um, based on whatever decisions people make in the very, very beginning of building the network, right? So like if you look at Ethereum as an example, they made a bunch of choices that then made the Ethereum network. And now there's certain things you can't do because of those choices early, early, early on. And I think only until recently with like the Ethereum merge and with the birth of other networks 
outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum that are trying to kind of take attention away, built and doing different things. They've learned from a lot of those lessons and they think more about kind of how to do this based on, is it going to influence how well this network works later on when it grows and is successful? Do you think it'll influence it, Jesse? Jesse is reading something else. He's, yes, he's, he is not locked in right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what I, so on the really? topic of networking, what I remember from the Julia conversation is she works on Dandelion, right? That is that is true. But the problem with that is that that's part of the second episode. So we're giving the cart away before the horse this. Well, that's how we do. Mm-hmm. You just give it all away. Yeah, we give it away. Um, I guess my, my strongest takeaway, and maybe I hope this isn't in the second part, was like when I asked her straight up, like, these things are never 100% private or 100% secure. She's like, no, you just got to live with that fact. And I think, like, it's not wrong. And, like, I always like to think of, like, I try to go back and I try to, like, hop in a time machine in my mind. And it's like, mail was probably a risk one day, like, long time ago. You give somebody an envelope and you're like, please get this to the person I love, please. And they're like, yeah. And they're like, we're okay, man, we're going to do our best. And like, and you're also like, and don't open it and don't give it to the wrong person. And like, no, that's why they used to seal it with wax, right? Yeah, Yeah, I know. But you can definitely melt wax and then read. And then, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just funny that the very second something like leaves, there's trust and hope that is involved and it doesn't matter what system you're on that's just human stuff well, and you have ciphers like, right and then you like you know encrypt the the message like, and well, there's then, trade-offs that's what that's what like most of the conversation i think with hano was was like there's all these crazy trade-offs with building peer-to-peer networks and it's really hard to get all the points or like i guess even just balance all the things you actually want in terms of performance and privacy and security and scalability, I guess that falls under performance, but like, like you have to try to you have all these various knobs you can turn and depending on what you're trying to do with the network, you, it's, it's still even like hard to turn all the knobs correctly such that you get a network that gives you everything you could ever want. There's going to be trade-offs. How do you scale like way. messaging to like many, many nodes? Like, how do you have a, like a, uh, like in matrix, right? Matrix chat, messaging service, whatever. Can can you have like a thousand people in like a chat room? Yeah. And that's what's, okay. But you're does, you're leveraging federated servers, so it's not like it's peer to peer, it's just kind of distributed. It's it's federated is the technical term for it. So it's a it's a so most of what Waku is, which is what Hano is an engineer for, Waku. is a suite of different <laughs> messaging protocols so that you can set up peer-to-peer networks with kind of the bells and whistles that you want and not the ones you don't want. So it's it's like a, it's a stack of different protocols that work in different contexts based on the type of peer-to-peer network you'd like to build.
In the last 10 years, more than $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management, scams, and hackers. Our new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. Check out Zengo and you'll find an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which until now had only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. And don't forget that Zengo has legendary in-app 24-7 live support with real humans. Zengo is a secure Web3 wallet, and your crypto, NFTs, and assets are fully recoverable using a biometric recovery kit. Get started at zengo.com slash tbppod and use the code tbppod to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's zengo.com slash tbppod. That's code tbppod for $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Part two of this episode focuses on privacy and security in the network layer. You mentioned um, that a lot of your study focus was on privacy within these networks and that it's a, a difficult problem to solve. If you have more centralized infrastructure, you have the ability to censor and, and, and monitors all the nodes in the network and maybe uh, keep them from misbehaving in, in, in ways like that. Another potential trade-off with that type of infrastructure is also privacy. So the person who's routing all these messages or the central hub for these messages ends up being able to see what all of them are in some circumstances. Uh, how How is privacy difficult in these peer-to-peer -peer networks? And what are the current methods for trying to uh, solve that or make or make it more improved? Yeah, so privacy in peer-to-peer -peer networks is kind of a subtle question. Um, so let me first explain how an attacker could potentially compromise your privacy in a peer-to-peer -peer network. So um, today, in many peer-to-peer -peer networks in blockchains, um, the way that transactions are broadcasted it is through a process um, that has different names. It can be called like flooding or diffusion. But the idea is basically that the transaction is going to spread like a ripple in a pond. Okay, so if I create a transaction, if I go to the coffee shop, I create a transaction, I'm going to pass that transaction to my peers or my neighbors in this network, and they're going to pass it to their neighbors and so forth. And so this transaction starts basically propagating over, over the underlying network. And the, the thing to keep in mind, if, you, if we go back to this ripple analogy, um, is that if you if you look at the ripples on a pond, you can kind of figure out where the center was, where like where, where the initial uh, pebble dropped, for example, um, because of the symmetry of how how ripples are structured. Similarly, in a peer-to-peer -peer network, if you um, launch or create a transaction and start broadcasting it, if an adversary is observing you at from different vantage points in the network, they can sometimes figure out which IP address originated the transaction. Uh, and this can be a privacy concern um, because that would allow the adversary to link your public key, which is contained in the transaction message, to your IP address, um, which is your, your network identifier. Uh, and IP addresses, uh, IP addresses are not sufficient to link you to a 
to a specific person, but they can in many cases be used to identify your location. And in some cases they can be used to, to link a user to, uh, to their human identity. So this is kind of a, a subtle attack that is possible, um, is mathematically possible. And there have been some uh, practical papers that showed that this can be done in practice to, to varying degrees of success. Um, so this, this is one of the main privacy risks that come in current peer-to-peer -peer networks and blockchain networks. Um, in terms of solutions to this problem, there's been a few different approaches. One approach is to use basically anonymization services like Tor um, that would allow you to connect to the peer-to-peer -peer network from somebody else, basically somebody else's IP address. This is generally effective, but can be attacked if, if your attacker manages to somehow control the exit nodes in Tor um, and can link your, uh, your cryptocurrency transaction to your IP address. Um, another approach that we've looked at in, in our group is to change the routing protocols in peer-to-peer -peer networks. Um, so like we worked on a, a protocol called Dandelion that tries to change the way that transactions are propagated over the peer-to-peer -peer networks. So instead of spreading like a ripple, which we said was symmetric and it's easy to identify the, the center of a ripple, instead we propagate it asymmetrically. So like it, it propagates over a, a line in, in some random direction. And then after a certain number of hops on the network, then it starts propagating like, like a ripple. Um, and so we did some theoretical analysis showing that this dandelion protocol has better privacy properties than just um, spreading symmetrically like, like what's done today. Um, in general, there have been efforts in various blockchains to try to address the privacy concerns um, that stem from the peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, but it, it is legitimately, I think, a, a pretty difficult problem. Yeah, it feels like most of the research that I've looked at completely ignores the peer-to-peer -peer layer. Um, there has been quite a bit of work in some of the underlying protocols with, with um, some of the peer-to-peer -peer work, like noise and ways in which you can make more secure handshakes, but the gossip layer and how you propagate the message and the underlying DHTs that are involved and how you do node discovery are like, doesn't seem like there's a tremendous amount of innovation when compared to the effort going into shielding transactions with zero knowledge, like um, Zcash and the myriad of other, like the, like the zero knowledge rollups, things like that. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm very curious to see what level of innovation is being worked on at a lower layer because that's where a good portion of the identifiable information exists through attaching an like a, a transaction to an IP address and and or for if you look at like data distribution or like distributed data plays like IPFS who's storing what information um, or pinning what information on their node basically like housing certain types of content and then going after them via, you know, DDoS attacks or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you're right. Um, for for many years, there was basically no attention being paid to the peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, and I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that even if even if 
your blockchain is protecting the data in your transaction, for example, using zero knowledge proofs, there's still something being leaked or something can be leaked at the peer-to-peer layer. Um, and it's, I think it's important to understand what that link is and whether you're okay with that level of, of privacy leakage. Um, so yeah, in the last couple of years, there has been more attention being paid to this problem. But I, I think at the end of the day, one of the big challenges is that these networks are open, which means that you know, an adversary can add as many nodes as they want to the peer-to-peer network. There's nothing fundamentally preventing them from doing that. And that makes it difficult to propose solutions that are going to be watertight. Um, yeah, I, like I, ha- I haven't seen anything yet that that is completely resistant to to all the types of adversarial manipulation that that are possible in principle. Um, so you're building, say you're building a blockchain network from scratch, you're going to try to get launched. What kind of, I guess, give and take do you make when it comes to building that networking layer? Like how private is private? How, like in order to make it usable, how would you try to make some, I guess, sacrifices to, to, to have a network that's operable for at scale? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of layers to that question. Um, I think what a lot of projects have done, um, at least for a while, a lot of projects were basically using the same networking stack that Bitcoin was using. And you know, I, I don't know what the developers were thinking internally, but uh, my, my guess would be that it was from a convenience standpoint. Um, like there's a, there's a working networking stack that, uh, that is reliable and has been used for you know, a major cryptocurrency. Um, there, there was no, there was not a compelling enough reason to like roll something from scratch. And to some extent that um, that's the, the sense in which uh, I think prior projects have prioritized usability. Uh, it's, it's like usability for, for the developers who are, or like ease, ease of implementation for developers who have to maintain this thing uh, and make sure that it's robust, resilient to uh, peer churn, nodes coming in, coming in and dropping out and so forth. So in that sense, uh, you know, I think there can be a lot of practical benefits to just taking, taking networking stacks that already exist. Um, for those projects that do want to prioritize privacy, there have been efforts to build, you know, cryptographic techniques uh, into the peer-to-peer layer, into the peer-to-peer network in order to provide privacy. And these have been, um, these provide strong privacy guarantees, but they're also like fairly fairly complex implementation projects. A few, uh, a few blockchains have implemented Dandelion, the, the work that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I would say that's like a, it's like an, an intermediate privacy level. So like on the, if on the one hand you have a fully private network uh, and on the other hand, you have the current flooding mechanism that I mentioned, you know, Dandelion is somewhere in between. It's not, um, it's not going to protect against every attack, but it gives you some basic protection against like blanket adversaries who are just trying to de-anonymize as many nodes as, as they can. So yeah, but 
I, I guess the short answer to your question is that there's really a lot of knobs to turn um, when you're designing a peer-to-peer -peer network or any network. Um, and I think designing it in such a way that your network remains robust and, and resilient is, is kind of delicate. And that typically takes priority over things like privacy. Mm, so it's never 100%. And you just have to understand that if you're, if you're using these networks. Yeah, for the, for the projects I've seen, that's the case. Okay. I think it can be, but it's, it's with all of these, with every knob you turn, if you go full tilt private, there's a bunch of trade-offs you have to, you have to take. And so, um, which increases a lot of different, um, difficulties with running the network in terms of scalability. So if you like one of these things that we haven't discussed yet is just even message complexity. So if you go full flood, like say the difference between perfectly routed centralized architecture where I send a message to a server, it sends it to the person I want to send it to. There's one, basically one hop or our exact peer to peer, like direct communication, which is I talk directly to that person. You don't have this um, message being delivered to a bunch of different nodes that have to process it and re resend it and so on and so forth. So like flooding, which is this thing where like I send it to one person, they send it to everyone they know, they send it to everyone they know. You end up with this, a lot of duplication of messages being processed across the entire network and everything in between. And so flooding in some circumstances allows you to kind of de-anonymize who sent a message because if the message looks the same from every node, you don't really know who sent it in the first place. But you have this trade-off of a bunch more messages being propagated across the network, which makes it more difficult for the network to scale to more and more and more nodes or more and more and more messages because at some point a given piece of hardware can't process that many messages in a time frame. And, and so like what she says, there's a lot of knobs to turn. And so what you're looking to do is figure out what your needs are for the network and then make something that's appropriate for that network. And in some cases, if your needs are incredibly private, you may end up fundamentally limiting the scale of that network can, can go to. Is that a reasonable thing to say, Julia? Yeah, in general, the trade-off with like more, the trade-off with privacy is typically, um, yeah, like utility. Uh, so latency, for example, overhead, um, yeah, message complexity, like you said. Yeah, so I, I think your characterization is, uh, is kind of spot on. That's typically the, the trade-off that ends up appearing. <laughs> Ideally, like what would be um, a good balance between some level of privacy? I, I guess I guess maybe uh, I'll go in this direction of the question. What projects have you seen that uh, are, are ones that implement adequate privacy in the space? Sorry, actually, could I um, circle back to the... Uh, sure. This question. I think one interesting thing about what you mentioned is that, um, like, maybe if you care more about privacy, maybe you, you might think that uh, you don't want to pass messages to everybody in the network. But this starts having a really interesting interplay with the consensus protocols that you're running, which is at a higher layer. Um, but actually, like the the consensus protocol, for example, in in a lot of in a lot of cryptocurrencies require all of the miners to get access to, to a particular transaction. And in, in theory, you're not supposed to know, like, okay, in practice, maybe we do, but at least in principle, if you're, if you don't know who the miners are, there's, you can't really do anything except broadcast the transaction to everyone. Um, so I think 
I think there's some really interesting open research questions around trying to understand what what is the interplay between designing a network that is both uh, effective in the sense that it it satisfies the communication needs of the of the um, blockchain system as a whole, um, while also accounting for other desired properties like privacy, like security, yeah. and so forth. Um, and that has not been the case. So typically, the network is designed kind of in isolation. It's not designed with the consensus mechanism in mind. That actually makes a lot of sense and something that I don't think people pay much attention to. Like if the message propagation takes longer than what your block time is supposed to be for blockchains, then you've, you've basically ruined the ability for your network to, to operate because like adding a bunch of latency at the networking layer is going to impact the time in which you can come to consensus because everyone needs to get messages or propagate messages out once they like say for instance i found a block for bitcoin right that whole block uh space argument was founded on the effort it's going to take to propagate a block once found and the disadvantage that a geographically far people from that propagation will have and trying to find the next block, right? And so they wanted to keep the blocks, the the block space small. So what you're propagating is something very small, so that you minimize that time that someone has when they've received the new block and are able to start processing on top of that one to find the next one, so that we don't have these like unfair games where people can find a block, distribute it, and then find a new block faster than the other people can uh, get the previous one and start working on the new one. And so like. There's, those are additional trade-offs when you start talking about a blockchain network, when you're thinking about a consensus mechanism and its requirements as well. So if you start adding a bunch of privacy features at the networking layer, you may end up ruining the desired consensus mechanism in the layers above or, or, or a bunch of other things that fall on top of it. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. That's a great point. Um, and this is partially why uh, like just increasing the block size isn't isn't going to solve the throughput problems in, in Bitcoin because it has security implications. The network takes when it takes longer to propagate a block, um, like you said, increases potential for forking, which has has security implications down the line. So if you want to satisfy a particular security level, um, you need to take into account the, the latency and the throughput of your underlying network. And we did we did some work a, a couple of years back on trying to design consensus protocols that are kind of tailored to the capabilities of your network. Um, but I think what I haven't seen so much is uh, is the reverse, which is networking protocols that are uh, taking more into account the or like co-designing the networking protocol with the with the consensus layer. Can you guys mentioned something and I just need some clarity. Can you like add privacy features in at different layers? So then wouldn't it make the most sense to like add it in as late as possible? Like so it's a it's tempting to think that, and that is actually the the technique or the approach that has been taken in practice. So like um a lot of the zero knowledge proofs um uh, like other other privacy techniques have mostly been added at the consensus layer. So they'll, they'll like cryptographically protect the content of a transaction. Um, 
but I think one thing that a lot of people maybe don't realize is that even if you do that, you're still leaking. Um, you, you can still leak information from the network layer. Maybe not as much, but there's there's still something. Okay. How has your focus on privacy um, given you, like what color glasses are you? Do, do you wear when you look at the solutions like that? When like it's like the purpose of implementing digital currencies using blockchain technology is in my opinion, anathema to a, like a privacy focus. Like how do you, how do you see their decisions that they've made when you, you know, something like that? Yeah, I think, um, part of the challenge is that there is a very pervasive view among regulators. I think that building in privacy capabilities into these technologies is is going to be extremely complex and is going to prevent them from being able to do their jobs. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's a, it's a little, con it's concerning from a privacy standpoint to think of, you know, one organization having access to that level of, of detail in terms of financial transactions. And so I think it's a, a good opportunity for privacy researchers and uh, privacy advocates to to propose solutions that are technically feasible while still um, while still permitting some level of oversight, right? Like there are AML regulations that need to be that need to be respected. Um, so can can we propose solutions that both uh, provide compliance? while still offering the end users of these systems some level of privacy. Um, because if, if we if that doesn't happen, and basically the, the discussion around these CBDCs is progressing very quickly. Um, I, and they've been deployed in a number of countries already. So if we don't have that discussion, there's a very real risk that these systems may end up being quite centralized and, and exposing a lot of this data to, uh, to like one organization within a government. Um, so it's a little alarming, but I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to um, try to do something as technologists and try to propose alternative solutions. How does that work where the best privacy solution is the one that the government doesn't actually want for its people? Um, I, I, I can think... tell you. Oh, please. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was like, I'll tell you how it works. <laughs> but go ahead. You sorry. Uh, my my question. My answer was not going to be as articulate as yours. So go ahead, Julie. I, I mean, I think to some extent there is a desire among there is a desire to provide some level of privacy. Uh, at least at, at 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 the very least, they're giving lip service to to this. And I think that a number of people who are trying to deploy CBDCs actually do care or do think that privacy is important, um, but just aren't, it's not clear right now um, how feasible it is to deploy these technologies. So I would like to think, I, don't, I would like to think that there are people on the inside as it were, who are trying to push for privacy conscious designs. Um, and we've seen some evidence of that in terms of like the white papers that are coming out from central banks on these currencies that at least allude to 
privacy enhancing technologies, even if the pilot itself maybe isn't um, using the full range of capabilities that it could. Um, so I'm hopeful that that discussion will continue to evolve and and that um, yeah, and that we'll see that we'll see solutions that actually are providing some meaningful level of, of privacy. Um, but I, I think it's still very, very new. It remains to be seen. Have you heard about DraftKings Marketplace? It's the place to snag the latest digital collectibles across sports, entertainment, and culture. DraftKings has released their first ever NFT fantasy game, Rainmakers Football. It's the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFLPA. Now you can collect the hottest player card NFTs while playing free for millions in prizes. Right now, everyone can get their first full roster starter pack for free. And playing is simple. Buy, sell, bid, and win player card NFTs of the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions on DraftKings Marketplace. Craft lineups of athletes from your NFT collection and earn points for touchdowns, receptions, and more just like daily fantasy football. Build your NFT franchise and enter free Rainmakers football contests all season long to compete for millions in prizes. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app now and sign up with promo code BITCOIN. Click the Rainmakers tile and opt in to get your first full roster starter pack for free. Plus, play for millions in prizes all football season and build the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers Football. That's promo code BITCOIN. Build, play, win only at DraftKings. Contest entries dependent on type and number of NFTs held. Eligibility restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See DraftKings.com for details. You mentioned the the benefits of of why peer-to-peer networks are used across um, blockchain networks or distributed networks or whatever you want to call them. Um, but there's there's subtle diff- there's subtle difficulties. You mentioned that it's difficult to design protocols that work efficiently. What are these trade-offs that that exists when switching over to a peer-to-peer architecture and why is that difficulty which then leads to these centralizing forces when people take shortcuts right okay so one thing that you need to do if you uh, uh, want to create an open access network is um uh, bs need to know where to connect right um if you are a stand uh, uh, just a random note and you want to participate in this particular protocol in this particular peer-to-peer network um where do you start right um, and oftentimes the shortcut that people uh, do take there is to either hard code or have some list of nodes somewhere, which uh, then serves as the kind of like bootstrap nodes or the entry nodes um, to the network. Uh, there are various ways around this, but there's uh, the bootstrapping problem is a, is a major challenge. Um, what else is, is difficult? Um, how do you create a network that's really scalable? If you're going to say... Um, we want a peer-to-peer network to be able to grow and grow indefinitely because we want uh, it to be permissionless um, so that as many people as possible uh, can grow. How do you design protocols in such a way that a new peer joining the network does not add to the uh, total um, resource requirement on the existing peers in the network? I would say that is, in a sense, the holy grail of scalability in peer-to-peer networks is designing protocols in such a way that, that uh, new peers joining the network um, does not add to the overall uh, resource burden on individual nodes. That is a, a big challenge. Um, security, of course, is, 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 a, is a massive challenge. Um, 
means that most protocols are vulnerable to to nodes with malicious malicious intent joining the network um, and not behaving according to protocol. So this could be explicitly hostile behavior. Uh, nodes could pretend to be something else or try and get control of the network. Um, these are often uh, grouped under civil attacks. Uh, they can try and isolate specific nodes in the network um, uh, or uh, give certain nodes in the network a wrong idea of the actual state of the network. Um, these are often called eclipse attacks because uh, it is designed to give a specific node or a group of nodes uh, uh, to hide the truth of what's happening in the network from those nodes so that they can't participate fully. What else? Uh, oh, I think designing from a developer's perspective, designing peer-to-peer -peer protocols uh, provides a particular challenge when it comes to maintenance and debugging, right? I mean, the only way to, uh, to, to really understand what's happening in a network is to simulate the network at scale, which is impossible in many cases because you have to recreate the network. Um, so that provides a particular challenge. There's often in peer-to-peer -peer networks a very high churn of users, and this creates a lot of noise. And so peer-to-peer -peer networks have to deal with way more noise um, than normal, uh, let's call it conventional networks. Um, what else? There's no... Um, authoritative state of for the network, right? I mean, there's only local views of what the state is. And eventually, especially in blockchain environments, you want uh, to settle on a state that everyone agrees on, but this takes time. Um, so there's always these peer periods of transition um, where uh, peers will have a, only a partial view of, of, of the actual state in the network, and you need to design around that. But I would say the most important challenge for us designing peer-to-peer -peer uh, protocols um, is to deal with this question of how do you enforce, in a sense, nodes to do what they should do? How do you, how do you, um, I guess, incentivize? Though I don't want to use the word incentivize now, but how do you do you incentivize uh, honest behavior in a network? Um, because this is the most vulnerable point, vulnerable point in in peer-to-peer -peer networks is the fact that we do rely on um, all nodes to uh, follow the rules, and there's no central point um, where we can in kind of enforce this um, uh, behavior, honest behavior. Yeah, I find that interesting. Like the whole, all the things you just went through, are consequences of the layer below consensus. So when we, when most people talk about blockchain networks, they're typically talking about, um, the things that are built as a product of consensus, but all of the difficulties, the, um, the scalability issues, the, you know, bootstrapping, joining the network, all these things are, are subject to a layer that's, com that's completely ignorant of the consensus protocol at hand this yeah. is just a group of a group of computers connecting to each other and passing arbitrary messages to each other which which corresponds to just chat applications it's um it's distributing data across these things so they can even come to an agreement on like they can perform consensus on something it's doing the consensus yeah. rounds it's all of these things that um are happening at this layer that i think people really neglect when thinking about 
the difficulties in building blockchain networks. And I, I think it's it's yeah. interesting because I when I mean, you think about security and privacy at this layer, there's a lot of things that come into play as well. Because like we talk about security of um, a consensus protocol or the privacy of messages being passed around, and once again, people focus on the consensus protocol and not necessarily like the messages being passed around the network and the burden that has on uh, the people who are participating. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, I don't know if you will agree with me on this, but I, I, I think this is the kind of like the neglected talking point when it comes to, um, well, blockchain technology in general. But I also think on a more positive note that, I mean, especially for non-technical people, it's, it's a little bit easier to wrap your head around the concepts. Um, in terms of decentralization than it is maybe in terms of the cryptographic um, uh, aspects of, of blockchain. I, I mean, if I speak to people and I um, try to explain maybe why uh, our blockchains deal with a double spend problem or something, you, you often get this kind of like glazed overlook and they kind of like don't, don't really understand uh, where you're going. But if I explain the decentralized aspect of it, it's as if uh, people, there's a more immediate grasp of what the uh, advantages they might be. The fact that, uh, oh, this seems much more resilient. Oh, this seems, uh, um, the fact that there's no central point um, means that the, we, the, the, that collusion is less um, possible, you know, that, and I think that people generally tend to understand that a bit faster. Um, and it also means when we speak about the challenges, I mean, in terms of communicating them, um, getting to an intuitive understanding. Um, it's a little bit easier, uh, which makes my job a little bit easier than I think many of your jobs. <laughs> well, it's also one of those things, right? It's like, if you want to, you want to be as, I don't know, inclusive as possible so that people can run nodes in any setting available. So that's, that's like browser, uh, through a bunch of different programming languages embedded into different applications, um, just a standalone node that doesn't do anything. And just sits on a server that's always on on your phone when you're using an application like so there's all different places you'd like people to be able to connect to a network yeah. but because when you look at each of those different operational environments they're going through a bunch of different technologies on the net on the layer below the overlay yeah. it's a computer peer peers an overlay network yeah. like that's going to be you know 5g and or 4g or lte depending on where you are in the world um going through some your, your web browser that has to go through the entire disgusting web browser stack that exists today that's constantly changing um, depending upon and also depending upon which browser you're actually using whether it be edge if you're weird firefox chrome whatever yeah. those are all different and so like you have to kind of accommodate for all these different people and because of that you end up with peers in the network that have limp like they're limited in their ability to, ability to participate and so that maybe that means yeah. that they can only receive messages or they can only make outgoing connections or they're limited in their ability to like process a bunch of transactions at once. And yeah. I think what, what Hano is getting to is like trying to come up with protocols that allow all these people to participate. That doesn't make some asymmetric problem throughout the network is really hard. Yes. We are, we're trying to be, um, be, be useful. Um, I, no matter what the kind of hardware is that you are, that you are bringing to the table and no matter what the pipe is Corey, that you're that you're using to connect um and and this is changing and, and i think a reason for this is that we are um uh, trying to design more multi-use peer-to-peer networks right 
um, it, it, it used to be that uh, that most P2P networks are just a single function. Napster, if you go back a little bit further, or or blockchain, right? Um, but what we're trying to design is is something that will be generally useful and be useful to a variety of applications with a variety of different um, kind of uh, profiles in terms of how they use the network. Um, and and for that, we also have to look at um, how people access the network, um, and they have this. Um, uh, I, I would say, it, well, we always speak of the continuum of um, of possible nodes that the network can have, right? From nodes that are in extremely restricted environments with very few resources to these very very strong nodes running on um, on a virtual service or or even even more. Um, and uh, we have to design protocols, P2P protocols, in such a way that the network is is useful and works um, with all of these nodes, without introducing asymmetries, um, as you've mentioned, uh, that causes network degradation. How does it look like in in practical terms? Like, let's say, I am in a a developing country in a city that doesn't have access to you know running water or you know stable electricity good internet of any kind um, how does it look like if i'm trying to use uh, one of these messaging protocols to let's say uh, potentially transact or even just communicate um, does that mean like each like each household might have like a uh, a prepaid smartphone um, that may be able to you know, install some sort of app and, yep. and communicate? Okay. Uh, yes, so exactly. So what we're trying to do with, with Waku specifically um, is we're trying to enumerate those problems, right? So uh, if you have bad internet connectivity, then one of the things is you will have low bandwidth availability. So we need to design protocols um, that work in low bandwidth environment. Um, you have... Uh, of course, a very slow or um, uh, CPU. Um, so we need to design protocols that's not a uh, does not add a lot in terms of uh, processing requirement. Um, and we also need to look at things like intermittent connectivity. So being robust against um, connection dropping all the time. Um, and how we try and do that is we try and uh, uh, expand our protocol suite with protocols that's specifically designed to address those issues, right? So if um, you have very low bandwidth requirement, you should be able to still subscribe to receive some messages in the network that you're interested in, um, but you might not be able to fully participate in a in a true peer-to-peer -peer manner in the network, right? But then there's a, of course a trade-off because as soon as you um, you you lose this this bandwidth requirement, you also um, uh, have uh, lose some of the privacy and decentralization benefits that you get. But at least we want to give people the option, and we want to mitigate or uh, lessen the effects of of these trade-offs as much as possible. Um, for intermittent connectivity, for example, you need to be able to use um, uh, kind of protocols which you can um, uh, maybe if you want to publish messages to the network or participate in some way that you can uh, have multiple attempts to do that and get some kind of acknowledgement from nodes that are actually fully participating in the network um, that yes your message has been received or it has been published to the network um, so we have designed protocols around these specific issues um, and your example 
yes i mean uh, if if anyone has access to um to to a, a, a slow old device that can install or run the application in in some way whether it's from a web browser or mobile browser or whether it's uh, through an app um they uh, uh they should be able to connect to the network even with, with really slow or intermittent connectivity you had privacy to this yes so privacy i should have mentioned already when i mentioned the trade-offs right because um privacy is one of the fundamental trade-offs that uh that we have to solve if you improve uh, let's say the scalability in the network and um you get bandwidth requirements way down uh, you may um have privacy there's an extra um dimension to consider right um so what happens in a peer-to-peer -peer network um, is that as long as all peers are well connected to all uh, other peers in the network, um, you can kind of disappear um, in the network uh, in that uh, your uh, messages maybe that originate from you and that terminate at you, so messages that you specifically send and receive, um, may be obscure because it's simply part of of um of the network traffic right but as soon as you do something like explained now where you are in a sense uh subscribing to receive only certain messages from the network or you're asking for acknowledgement to say that you are um uh, that your message has been published but you're not participating in the same way um as these networks uh these nodes fully participating with the network uh you are kind of giving away um uh, both which messages you're interested in receiving and which messages um, you are uh, interested in um, in publishing, right? So then again, there are ways in which we can mitigate this. You can uh, use some kind of anonymization network or a mixed net um, uh, between you and um, and let's say the the fully functioning high bandwidth uh, arena of nodes communicating on the peer-to-peer -peer network. Um, but then again, you add um, more latency and more of a bandwidth requirement, right? Because those things um, uh, uh, requires um, more processing and more bandwidth. Um, does it make sense? Yeah. So, so if I had like three imaginary levers: security, uh, computation as a result of you know increasing this security lever, uh, yeah. and then I have you know messaging, and if I increase messaging, you know uh, throughput or, you know, peers I can connect to, then I increase the computational lever as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so if bandwidth, you have latency um, and you have privacy or security, um, but those aren't the uh, synonymous terms, but yeah, um, but yes. So it sounds like, like it's a real challenge to, to provide a decent user experience that's uh, something like a centralized service provides like in terms of yeah. i don't know skype or uh, i don't know. i was going to mention i don't know why aol instant messenger back in the day <laughs> um but yeah so how do we get to that point where where you can't really notice the difference as a consumer is it hardware gets so good or is it that we just drop our threshold of what is an adequate minimum for you know messaging I would say the most work is not in the hardware. I would say it's in the um, it's in designing these protocols in a way that makes sense, right? And I'm I'm 
confident that we're getting close to there um and to that point where where people are uh, would call it um at least certain applications um seamless i think that would be the the word that we we would want people to say when they when they use our protocols of course um this would be the case for uh, certain applications, which is easier to get to a point where a user experience is acceptable or even good. Um, I, I think um, chat applications is a good example of where we can get to that um, point because um, the sort of trade-offs that we're trying to make, I think is, is at a point where um, uh, they're all at a, at, a, at a level that is acceptable to people using a chat application, right? You don't expect, I mean, uh, um, you don't have the requirements of HD streaming, for example, um, mm -hmm. uh, on, a, on, on a chat application. Getting to a point where we can say we decentralize everything, which is, I think, um, kind of like a buzzword now, um, and uh, or, a, or a slogan now that uh, people are aiming for. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm a, a protocol engineer. I would like to see that happening. Uh, but I think things, for example, like, um, like uh, video streaming, uh, video calls, those are much more difficult to get right, right? So what people usually do is um, you try and um, uh, use peer-to-peer -peer networks as a form of, of setting up control signaling uh, or, or distributing control signaling to set up uh, maybe more direct links for the streaming to happen or for file downloads to happen um, even earlier. Um, but then there's still a point-to-point -point connection. Um, at the end for uh, these high bandwidth um, uh, kind of applications. On top of that, I'd say like try to build things. I think it's reasonable to try and build things in such a way that you have context of the environment you need to operate in. So like if you need ridiculous privacy, if you're if you if you are um, operating in an environment where you need strong guarantees that other people can't read your messages, then yeah. you're much more willing to undergo a little more friction in order to get to that environment. So maybe that means your your message rate is dropped because of all of the stuff happening on the back end of the peer-to-peer -peer network to provide those guarantees. But if you're just kind of in this, you know, group chat about shilling NFTs, you don't really care. And so you're able to choose a specific amount of protocols that to have less security and privacy guarantees so that you can have a fast message rate or, or lower bandwidth or whatever. Right. And the same thing happens if like, if you have, you know, terrible bandwidth or a really, really, really resource restricted device, yeah. um, you're, you're just, you, you're limited in your potential options that you can participate in because you don't have the resources to be in one of those more extreme environments. Um, and the goal is to try and lessen that as much as possible. But I think to some ex certain extent, there will always be limitations um, in, in, in that kind of manner speaking. There will always be trade-offs. You're absolutely right. And this is certainly the approach that we take in, in terms of our uh, protocol design. We want to provide all of the tools necessary um, for all of these different, different applications to, to pick and choose the kind of like security guarantees that they want. Um, the uh, the protocols that they need um, in order to make the application work um, and to be very clear in terms of the trade-offs that they uh, are making or would have to make um, when they are setting up these kind of environments. And then at the same time, trying to mitigate those trade-offs as much as possible um, and, uh, and, and continuously trying to improve on areas 
where people are running into these kind of bottlenecks um, because they have a strong requirement sound security or a strong requirement on reducing bandwidth um, uh, which as uh, you mentioned Jesse kind of like being some of the other levers are, um, are, are being pulled in the wrong direction it's one of those things that's like hard to fathom because but it's necessary for real scale I mean I'm not sure you're ever going to get to a point where that's 100% true, but yep. minimizing that that additional burden when someone joins the network or um, constraining it to only a few people within the network and not the entire network. Because right now, like if you think about just a, a naive flooding network, yep. every time you add one person, you add exponentially more messages being pushed across the network, which yep. means that every person in the entire network now has to process so many more transactions or yep. messages, whatever you want to call them. And yeah. and that's clearly not scalable. And that's how like the original whisper was created. Absolutely. Which is why we yeah. burned phones at status when we initially implemented it was because phones were processed. Like every time we, we went to a conference and got every people to use status, we killed everyone's data plan and battery because a bunch of people joined really, really quickly. And then everyone just started just processing messages and messages and messages. I didn't know whisper was naive flooding based in terms of communication. Okay. Well, they, the whole goal of Whisper was to de-anonymize um, like sender and receiver as much as possible. And you do that by basically like flooding the network so you don't know where something came from. And essentially, it, it, it tried to, in a, I would say, synchronize uh, messages across the network. Right? So it's, it, it's flooding, but was the idea was that everyone should be be able to see what the state of the latest message was on the network. And this creates this, this, this idea of... Um, uh, always informing all nodes around me of, of everything that I see in the network. Um, and uh, yeah, which is basically flat rooted. Um, that does not scale. If you don't make a decision on routing, then no one can know what the route is. <laughs> exactly. Basically, but, right? Well, I mean, it's yeah. true now. And that's the trade-off, right? Is, is, is yeah. you disperse a message across a network really fast because everyone sends everything, but every node has to process everything including the same message in times with in being the number of nodes yeah. in the network because they get it from every single person every time yeah. uh, and so like that's where like you start to make more like gossip-based networks where there's rules on how you pass messages around based on um who you're connected to and and what you know they have or whatever or whatever right so you can come up with all arbitrary rules to try and minimize the amount of redundancy that any given node gets when spreading one message across the entire network and there's just like infinite ways in which you can try and optimize this type of stuff i wish there was a sliding scale that was like i'm a resource restricted user i don't care about my privacy you know so you don't need to throw me uh, in with a bunch of peers so i can hide myself and then and you know i have a crappy I mean, process that's literally the goal i mean that's that's literally what we're trying to build. Yeah, but no, absolutely. Yeah. If I can, a, if I can have a, a literal sliding scale, I would, uh, I would be happy. Yeah. Like <laughs> in my, in my vision, we all, you know, full disclosure, we all work at Status, so we build these things. Um, but it's, it's like that's the goal is to have Status nodes have a user be able to slide their scale and the various dimensions on how they want to operate, and then the, you know, the software, the node takes care of itself and does and, and allows them to participate that way exactly for us the two main alert I, I, I mean these these scales would be divided into two categories so the one is the resource category which is uh, which is just something that users generally have a little control over right they have the resources that they have 
Um, and then there's the motivation skill as well, which is uh, I have an application and I care about these properties more than others. Um, and we should be able to provide that on peer-to-peer -peer networks um, if we are planning, uh, if, if we're hoping to see uh, it becomes as widely useful and as widely used as we want it to be used. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Hanno, uh, is there anything we should have asked you that we didn't? Uh, I think we, we covered uh, a lot of the interesting things. Of course, there's a lot more um, in terms of P2P networks. Always happy to chat. You can find links to Julia Fonti and Hanno Cornelius in the show notes. Let's go way to wrap up. 